Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked room today, didn't you? You tried to How do the dead come back, Mother? What's the secret? Basil Netherby by A.C. Benson. It was five o'clock in the afternoon of an October day that Basil Netherby's letter arrived. I remember that my little clock had just given its warning click when the footsteps came to my door, and just as the clock began to strike came a hesitating knock. I called out, Come in! And after some fumbling with the handle, there stepped into the room, I think, the shyest clergyman I have ever seen. He shook hands like an automaton, looking over his left shoulder. He wouldn't sit down and yet looked about the room as he stood, as if wondering why the ordinary civility of a chair was not offered him. He spoke in the husky voice, out of which he endeavoured at intervals to cast some viscous obstruction by loud hawkings, and when, after one of these interludes, he caught my eye, he went a sudden pink in the face. However, the letter got handed to me, and I gradually learned from my visitor's incoherent talk that it was from my friend Basil Netherby, and that he was well, remarkably well, quite a different man from what he had been when he came to Traheel, that he himself, Vivian was his name, was curate of St. Sibby. Traheel was the name of the house where Mr. Netherby lived. The letter had been most important, he thought, for Mr. Netherby had asked him, as he was going up to town, to convey the letter himself and to deliver it, without fail, into Mr. Ward's own hands. He could not, however, account. Here he turned away from me and hummed and beat his fingers on the table for the extraordinary condition in which he was compelled to hand it to me, as it had never, so far as he knew, left his own pocket. And presently, with a gasp, Mr. Vivian was gone, refusing all proffers of entertainment, and falling briskly down to judge from the sounds which came to me outside my door. I, Leonard Ward, was then living in rooms in a little street out of Holborn, a poor place enough. I was an organist of St. Bartholomew's Holborn, and I was trying to do what is described as getting up a connection in the teaching line. But it was slow work, and I must confess that my prospects did not appear to me very cheerful. However, I taught one of the vicar's little daughters, and a whole family, the children of a rich tradesman in a neighbouring street, the piano and singing, so that I contrived to struggle on. Basil Netherby had been with me at the College of Music. His line was composing. He was a pleasant, retiring fellow, voluble enough, and even rhetorical in tete-a-tete talk with an intimate, but dumb in company, with an odd streak of something, genius or eccentricity, about him which made him different from other men. We had drifted into an intimacy, and had indeed lodged together for some months. Netherby used to show me his works, mostly short studies, and though I used to think that they were always rather oddly broke down in unexpected places, yet there was always an air of aiming high about them, an attempt to realise the ideal. He left the college before I did, saying that he had learnt all he could learn, and that now he must go quietly into the country somewhere and work alone. He should do no good otherwise. I heard from him fitfully. He was in Wales, in Devonshire, in Cornwall, and then, some three months before the day on which I got the letter, the correspondence had ceased altogether. I didn't know his address, and was always expecting to hear from him. 
I took up the letter from the place where Mr. Vivian had laid it down. It was a bulky envelope, and it was certainly true that, as Mr. Vivian had said, the packet was in an extraordinary condition. One of the corners was torn off, with a ragged edge that looked like the nibbling of mice, and there were disagreeable stains both on the front and the back, so that I should have inferred that Mr. Vivian's pocket had been filled with raspberries. The theory, though improbable, did not appear impossible. But what surprised me most was that near each of the corners in front a rough cross of ink was drawn, and one at the back of the flap. I had little doubt, however, that Mr. Vivian had, in a nervous and absent mood, harried the poor letter into the condition in which I saw it, and that he had been unable to bring himself to confess to the maltreatment. I tore the letter open. There fell out several pages of manuscript music, and a letter in which Basil, dating from Treheal, and writing in a bold, firm hand, bolder and firmer, I thought, than of old, said that he had been making a good deal of progress and working very hard, which must account for his silence, and he ventured to enclose some of his last work, which he hoped I would like, but he wanted a candid opinion. He added that he had got quarters at a delightful farmhouse not far from Grand Pound. That was all. Stay, that was not all. The letter finished on the third side, but as I closed it, I saw written on the fourth page, very small, in a weak, loose hand, and as if scribbled in a ferocious haste as a man might write, so it came oddly into my head, who was escaped for a moment from the vigilance of a careful jailer. A single sentence, Vivian will take this, and for God's sake, dear Leonard, if you would help a friend who is on the edge, I dare not say of what, come to me tomorrow, uninvited. You will think this very strange, but do not mind that, only come unannounced. Do you see? The line broke off in an unintelligible flourish. Then, on each corner of the last page, had been scrawled a cross with the same ugly and slovenly haste as the crosses on the envelope. My first thought was that Basil was mad. My next thought, that he had drifted into some awkward situation, fallen under some unfortunate influence, was perhaps being blackmailed. And I knew his sensitive character well enough to feel sure that whatever the trouble was, it would be exaggerated ten times over by his lively and apprehensive mind. Slowly, a situation shaped itself. Basil was a man, as I knew, of an extraordinary austere standard of morals, singularly guileless and innocent of worldly matters. Someone, I augured, some unscrupulous woman, had, in the remote spot where he was living, taken a guileful fancy to my poor friend, and had doubtless, after veiled overtures, resolved on a bolder policy, and was playing on his sensitive and timid nature by some threat of nameless discourse, some vile and harrowing innuendo. I read the letter again, and still more clear did it seem to me that he was in some strange durance and suffering under abominable fears. I rose from my chair and went to find a timetable that I might see when I could get to Grandpound, when again a shuffling footstep drew to my door, an uncertain hand knocked at the panel, and Mr. Vivian again entered the room. This time his confusion was even greater, if that were possible, than it had been previously. 
he had forgotten to give me a further message, and he thereupon gave me a filthy scrap of paper, nibbled and stained like the envelope, apologized with unnecessary vehemence, uttered a strangled cough, and stumbled from the room. It was difficult enough to decipher the paper, but I saw that a musical phrase had been written on it, and then, in a moment, I saw that it was a phrase from an old, extravagant work of Basil's own, a credo, which we had often discussed together, the grim and fantastic accompaniment of the sentence, He descended into hell. This came to me as a message of even greater urgency, and I hesitated no longer. I sat down to write a note to the father of my family of pupils, in which I said that important business called me away for two or three days. I looked out a train, and found that by catching the ten o'clock limited mail, I could be at Grandpa by six in the morning. I ordered a hasty dinner, and I packed a few things into a bag with the oppressive sense of haste. But as generally happens on such occasions, I found that I still had two or three hours in hand. So I took up Netherby's music and read it through carefully. Certainly he had improved wonderfully in handling, but what music it was! It was like nothing of which I had ever even dreamed. There was a wild, intemperate voluptuousness about it, a kind of evil relish of beauty which gave me a painful thrill. To make sure that I wasn't mistaken, owing to the nervous tension which the strange event had produced in me, I put the things in my pocket and went out to the house of a friend, Dr. Grierson, an accomplished and critical musician who lived not far away. I found the great man at home smoking leisurely. He had a bird-like demeanour, like an ancient stork, as he sat blinking through spectacles astride of a long-pointed nose. He had a slight acquaintance with Netherby, and when I mentioned that I had received some new music from him, which I wished to submit to him, he showed obvious interest. A promising fellow, he said, only, of course, too uh, transcendental. He took the music in his hand, he settled his spectacles, and read. Presently he looked up, and I saw in the kind of shamefaced glance with which he regarded me that he had found something of the same incomprehensible sensuality which had so oddly affected myself in the music. Come, come, he said rather severely, this is very strange stuff. This won't do at all, you know. We must just hear this. He rose and went to his piano, and peering into the music, he played the pieces deliberately and critically. Heard upon the piano, the accent of subtle evil that ran through the music became even more obvious. I seemed to struggle between two feelings, an overpowering admiration and a sense of shame at my own capacity for admiring it. But the great man was still more moved. He broke off in the middle of a bar and tossed the music to me. This is filthy stuff, he said. I should say to you, burn it. It's clever, of course, hideously, devilishly clever. Look at the progression, F-sharp against F-natural, you observe. And then he added some technical details with which I need not trouble my readers. He went on. But the man has no business to think of such things. I don't like it. Tell him from me that it won't do. There must be some reticence in art, you know, and there is none here. Tell Netherby that he is on the wrong tack altogether. Good heavens, he added, how could the man write it? 
He used to be a decent sort of fellow. It may seem extravagant to write thus of music, but I can only say that it affected me as nothing I had ever heard before. I put it away. We tried to talk of other things, but we couldn't get the stuff out of our heads. Presently I rose to go, and the doctor reiterated his warnings still more emphatically. The man is a criminal in art, he said, and there must be an end once and for all for this. Tell him it's abominable. I went back, caught my train, and was whirled sleepless and excited to the west. Towards morning I fell into a troubled sleep, in which I saw in tangled dreams the figure of a man running restlessly among stony hills. Over and over again the dream came to me, and it was with a grateful heart, though very weary, that I saw a pale light of dawn in the east, and the dark trees and copses along the line becoming more and more defined by swift gradations in the chilly autumn air. It was very still and peaceful when we drew up at Grandpound Station. I inquired my way to Traheel, and I was told it was three or four miles away. The porter looked rather inquiringly at me. There was no chance of obtaining a vehicle, so I resolved to walk, hoping that I should be freshened by the morning air. Presently a lane struck off from the main road which led up a wooded valley with a swift stream rushing along. In one or two places the chimney of a deserted mine with desolate rubbish heaps stood beside the road. At one place a square church tower with pinnacles looked solemnly over the wood. The road rose gradually. At last I came to a little hamlet, perched high up on the side of the valley. The scene was incomparably beautiful. The leaves were yellowing fast and I could see a succession of wooded ridges with a long line of moorland closing the view. The little place was just waking into quiet activity. I found a bustling man taking down shutters from a general shop, which was also the post office, and inquired where Mr. Netherby lived. The man told me that he was in lodgings at Traheel, the big house itself, where Farmer Hall lives now. If you go straight along the road, he added, you will pass the lodge, and Traheel lies up in the wood. I was by this time very tired. It was now nearly seven, but I took up my bag again and walked along a road passing between high hedges. Presently the wood closed in again, and I saw a small plastered lodge with a thatched roof standing on the left among some firs. The gate stood wide open, and the road which led into the wood was grass-grown, though with deep ruts along which heavy-laden carts seemed to have passed recently. The lodge seemed deserted, and I accordingly struck off into the wood. Presently the undergrowth grew thicker, and huge sprawling laurels rose in all directions. Then the track took a sudden turn, and I saw straight in front of me the front of a large Georgian house of brown stone with a gravel sweep up to the door, but all overgrown with grass. I confess that the house displeased me strangely. It was substantial, homely, and large, but the wood came up close to it on all sides, and it seemed to stare at me with its shuttered windows, with a look of dumb resentment, like a great creature at bay. I walked on and saw that the smoke went up from a chimney to the left. 
The house, as I came closer, presented the front with a stone portico crowned with a pediment. To the left and right were two wings which were built out in advance from the main part of the house, throwing the door back into shadow. I pulled a large handle which hung beside the door, and a dismal bell rang somewhere in the house, rang on and on as if unable to cease. Then footsteps came along the floor within, and the door was slowly and reluctantly unbarred. There stood before me a little pale woman with a timid, downcast air. Does Mr. Netherby live here? I said. Yes, he lodges here, sir. Uh, can I see him? I said. Well, sir, he's not up yet. Does he expect you? Well, uh, not exactly, I said, faltering, but he will know my name, and I have come a long way to see him. The woman raised her eyes and looked at me, and I was aware by some swift intuition that I was in the presence of a distressed spirit labouring under some melancholy prepossession. Will you be here long? she asked suddenly. No, I said, but I shall have to stay the night, I think. I travelled all last night, and I am very tired. In fact, I shall ask to sit down and wait till I can see Mr. Netherby. She seemed to consider for a moment, and then led me into the house. We entered a fine hall with stone flags and pillars on each side. There hung, so far as I could see in the half-light, grim and faded portraits on the walls. And there were some indistinct pieces of furniture, like couched beasts in the corners. We went through a door and down a passage, and turned into a large, rather bare room, which showed, however, some signs of human habitation. There was a table, laid for a meal. An old piano stood in a corner, and there were a few books lying about. On the walls hung large pictures in tarnished frames. I put down my bag and sat down by the fire in an old armchair, and almost instantly fell into a drowse. I have an indistinct idea of the woman returning to ask if I would like some breakfast, or wait for Mr. Netherby. I said hastily that I would wait, being in the oppressed condition of drowsiness, when one's only idea is to get a respite from the presence of any person, and fell again into a heavy sleep. I woke suddenly with a start, conscious of a movement in the room. Basil Netherby was standing close beside me, with his back to the fire, looking down at me with a look which I can only say seemed to me to betoken a deep annoyance of spirit. But seeing me awake, there came onto his face a smile of a reluctant and diplomatic kind. I started to my feet, giddy and bewildered, and shook hands. "'My word,' he said. "'You sleep sound, Ward. So you've found me out. Well, I'm very glad to see you, but what made you think of coming?' And why didn't you let me know? I would have sent someone to meet you. I was a good deal nettled at this ungenial address, after the trouble to which I had put myself. I said, Well, really, Basil, I think it's rather strong. Mr. Vivian called me yesterday with a letter from you, and some music, and of course I came away at once. Uh, of course, he said, looking on the ground, and then added rather hastily, Now, how did this stuff strike you? I have improved, I think. And it's really very good of you to come off at once to criticise the music. Very good of you, he said with some emphasis. And man, you look wretchedly tired. Let us have breakfast. I was just about to remonstrate and to speak about the postscript when he looked at me suddenly with so peculiar and disagreeable a glance 
that the words literally stuck in my throat. I thought to myself that perhaps the subject was too painful to enter upon at once, and that he probably wished to tell me at his own time what was in the background. We breakfasted, and now that I had leisure to look at Basil, I was surprised beyond measure at the change in him. I had last seen him a pale, rather haggard youth, loose-limbed and untidy. I saw before me a strongly built and firmly knit man with a ruddy colour and bronzed cheek. He looked the embodiment of health and well-being. His talk, too, after the first impression of surprise wore off, was extraordinarily cheerful and amusing. Again and again he broke out into loud laughter, not the laughter of an excited or hectic person, but the firm, brisk laugh of a man full to the brim of good spirits and health. He talked of his work, of the country people that surrounded him, whose peculiarities he seemed to observe with much relish. He asked me, but without any appearance of interest, what I thought about his work. I tried to tell him what Dr. Grierson had said, and what I had felt, but I was conscious of being at a strange disadvantage before this genial personality. He laughed loudly at our criticisms. Old Grierson, he said, why, he's no better than a clergyman's widow. He would stop his ears if you read Shakespeare to him. My dear man, I have travelled a long way since I saw you last. I have found my tongue. And what is more, I can say what I mean, and I mean it. Grierson, indeed. I can see him looking shocked like a pelican with a stomachache. This was a felicitous thought, though not a courteous description of our old friend, but I could find no words to combat it. Indeed, Basil's talk and whole bearing seemed to carry me away like a swift stream, and in my weary condition I found that I could not stand up to his radiant personality. After breakfast he advised me to have a good sleep, and he took me, with some show of solicitude, to a little bedroom which had been got ready for me. He unpacked my things and told me to undress and go to bed, that he had some work to do that he was anxious to finish, and that after luncheon we would have a stroll together. I was too tired to resist and fell at once into a deep sleep. I rose a new man, and finding no one in Basil's room, I strolled out for a moment onto the drive and presently saw the odd and timid figure of Mrs. Hall coming along in a big white flapping sort of sunbonnet with a basket in her hand. She came straight up to me in a curious, resolute sort of way, and it came into my mind that she had come out for the very purpose of meeting me. I praised the beauty of the place, and said that I supposed she knew it well. Yes, she said, adding that she was born in the village, and her mother had been as a girl a servant at Traheel. But she went on to tell me that she and her husband had lived till recently at a farm down in the valley, and had only been a year or so in the house itself. Old Mr. Heel, the last owner, had died three or four years before, and it had proved impossible to let the house. It seemed that when the trustees gave up all idea of being able to get a tenant, they had offered it to the halls at a nominal rent to act as caretakers. She spoke in a cheerless way, with her eyes cast down, and with the same strained look as of one carrying a heavy burden. "'You will have heard of Mr. Heel, perhaps,' she said, with a sudden look at me. "'The old squire, sir,' she said, "'but I think people here are unfair to him. "'He lived a wild life enough, "'but he was a kind gentleman in his way, "'and I have often thought it was not his fault altogether. 
He married soon after he came into the estate, a Miss Tregaskis from down at St. Ern, and they were a very happy couple for a little, but she died after they'd been married a couple of years and they had no child. And then I think Mr. Heal shut himself up a good deal amongst his books. He was a very clever gentleman. And then he got into bad ways. But it was the sorrow in his heart that made him bad. And we must not blame people too much, must we? She looked at me with a rather pitiful look. You mean, I said, that he tried to forget his grief and did not choose the best way to do it? Yes, sir, said Mrs. Hall simply. I think he blamed God for taking away what he loved instead of trusting him. And no good comes of that. The people here got to hate him. He used to spoil the young people, sir. You know what I mean. And they were afraid of seeing him about their houses. I remember, sir, as if it were yesterday, seeing him in the lane to St. Sibby. He was marching along very upright with his white hair, went white early, and he passed old Mr. Miles, the churchwarden, who had been a wild young man too, but he found religion with the Wesleyans, and after that was hard on everyone. It was the first time they had met since Mr. Miles had become serious, and Mr. Heels stopped in his pleasant way and held out his hand to Mr. Miles, who put his hands behind him and said something. I was close to them, which I couldn't quite catch, but it was about fellowship with the words of darkness. And then Mr. Miles turned and went on his way, and Mr. Heel stood looking after him with a curious smile on his face, and I have pitied him ever since. Then he turned and saw me. He always took notice of me. I was a girl then, and he said to me, There, Mary, you, you see that? I am not good enough, it seems, for Mr. Miles. Well, I don't blame him. But remember, child, that the religion which makes a man turn his back on an old friend is not a good religion. But I could see he was distressed, though he spoke quietly. And as I went on, he gave a sigh which somehow stays in my mind. Perhaps, sir, you would like to look at his picture. It was painted at the same time as Mrs. Heel in the first year of their marriage. I said I should like to see it, and we turned to the house. She led me to a little room that seemed like a study. There was a big bookcase full of books, mostly of a scientific kind, and there was a large knee-hole table much dotted with ink spots. It was here, she said, he used to work hour after hour. On the wall hung a pair of pictures, one that of a young woman, hardly more than a girl, with a delightful expression, both beautiful and good. She was dressed in some white material, and there was a glimpse of sunlit fields beyond. Then I turned to the portrait of Mr. Heel. It represented a young man in a claret-coloured coat, very slim and upright. It showed a face of great power, a big forehead, clear-cut features, and a determined chin, with extraordinarily bright large eyes. Evidently the portrait of a man of great physical and mental force, who would do whatever he took in his hand with all his might, it was very finely painted, with a dark background of woods against a stormy sky. I was immensely struck by the picture, and not less by the fact that there was an extraordinary, though indefinable, likeness to Mrs. Hall herself. I felt somehow that she perceived that I had noticed this, for she made as though to leave the room. I couldn't help the inference that I was compelled to draw, 
I lingered for a moment, looking at the portrait, which was so lifelike as to give an almost painful sense of the presence of a third person in the room. And Mrs. Hall went out, and I understood that I was meant to follow her. She led the way into their own sitting-room, and then, with some agitation, she turned on me. "'I understand that you're an old friend of Mr. Netherby, sir,' she said. "'Yes,' I said. "'He is my greatest friend. "'Could you persuade him, sir, to leave this place?' she went on. "'You'll think it a strange thing to say, and I'm glad enough to have a lodger, and I like Mr. Netherby, but do you think it is a good thing for a young gentleman to live so much alone?' I saw that nothing was to be gained by reticence, so I said— "'Now, Mrs. Hall, I think we had better speak plainly. "'I am, I confess, anxious about Mr. Netherby. "'I don't mean that he is not well, for I have never seen him look better, "'but I think that there's something going on which I don't wholly understand.' "'She looked at me suddenly with a quick look, "'and then, as if deciding that I was to be trusted, "'she said in a low voice, "'Yes, sir, that is it. "'This house is not like other houses. "'Mr. Heal how shall I say it, was a very determined gentleman, and he used to say that he would never leave the house, and you'll think it very strange that I should speak thus to a stranger. I don't think he has left it. We stood there for a moment silent, and I knew that she had spoken the truth. While we thus stood, I can only say what I felt. I became aware that we were not alone. The sun was bright in the woods outside. The clock ticked peacefully in a corner, but there was something unseen all about us which lay very heavily on my mind. Mrs. Hall put out her hands in a deprecating way and then said in a low and hurried voice, "'He would do no harm to me, sir. We are too near for that.' She looked up at me and I nodded. "'But I can't help it, can I, if he is different with other people?' Now, Mr. Hall is not like that, sir. He's a plain good man and would think what I am saying no better than madness. But as sure as there is a God in heaven, Mr. Heal is here. And though he is too fine a gentleman to take advantage of my talk, yet he liked to command other people and went his own way too much. While she spoke, the sense of oppression, which I had felt a moment before, drew off all of a sudden, and it seemed again as though we were alone. Mrs. Hall, I said, you're a good woman. These things are very dark to me, and though I've heard of such things in stories, I never expected to meet them in the world. But I will try what I can do to get my friend away, though he's a willful fellow, and I think he will go his own way too. While I spoke, I heard Basil's voice outside calling me, and I took Mrs. Hall's hand in my own. She pressed it, and gave me a very kind, sad look, and so I went out. We lunched together, Basil and I, off simple fare. He pointed with an air of satisfaction to the score which he had brought into the room, written out with wonderful precision. Just finished, he said, and you shall hear it later on. But now we will go and look around the place. Was there ever such luck as to get a harbourage like this? I've been here two months and feel like staying forever. The place is in Chancery, Old Heel of Traheel, the last of the stock, a rare old blackguard, died here. They tried to let the house and failed and put Farmer Hall in at last. The whole place belongs to a girl ten years old. It's a fine house. We'll look at that tomorrow, but today we will walk round outside. By the way, how long can you stay? Uh, I must get back on Friday at latest, I said. I have a choir practice and a lesson on Saturday. 
Basil looked at me with a good-natured smile. Pretty poor business, isn't it, he said. I would rather pick oakum myself. Here I live in a fine house for next to nothing, and right, 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 there's a life for a man. Don't you find it lonely? said I. Lonely, said Basil, laughing loud. Not a bit of it. What do I want with a pack of twaddlers all about me? I tread a path among the stars, and I have the best of company, too. He stopped and broke off suddenly. I should have thought Mrs. Hall very enlivening company, I said. By the way, what an odd-looking woman. She seems as if she were frightened. At that innocent remark, Basil looked at me suddenly with the same expression of indefinable anger that I had seen in his face at our first meeting. But he said nothing for a moment. Then he resumed. No, I want no company but myself and my thoughts. I tell you, Ward, if you had done as I have done, opened a door into the very treasure house of music, and had only just to step in and carry away as much as one can manage at a time, you wouldn't want company. I could make no reply to this strange talk, and he presently took me out. I was astonished at the beauty of the place. The ground fell sharply at the back, and there was a terrace with a view over a little valley with pasture fields at the bottom, crowned with low woods, beyond a wide prospect over uplands, which lost themselves in the haze. The day was still and clear, and we could hear the running of the stream below, the cooing of doves and the tinkling of a sheep bell. To the left of the house lay large stables and barns, which were in the possession of the farmer. We wandered up and down by paths and lanes, sometimes through the yellowing woods, sometimes on open ground, the most perfect views bursting upon us on every side, everything lying in a rich, still peace, which came upon my tired and bewildered mind like soft music. In the course of our walk we suddenly came upon a churchyard, surrounded by a low wall. At the farther end, beyond the graves, stood a small church consisting of two aisles with a high perpendicular tower. St. Sibby, said Basil, whether he or she, I know not, but no doubt a very estimable person. Would you like to look at this? The church is generally open. We went up a gravel path and entered the porch. The door was open, and there was an odd, close smell in the building. It was a very plain place, with the remains of a root loft and some ancient woodwork, but the walls were mildewed and green, and the place looked neglected. Vivian is a good fellow, said Basil, looking round, but he's single-handed here. The rector is an invalid and lives in Penzance, and Vivian has a wretched stipend. Look here, Leonard, here is the old heel vault. He led me into a little chapel near the tower which opened onto the church by a single arch. The place was very dark, but I could see a monument or two of an ancient type with some brasses. There were a couple of helmets on iron supports and the remains of a mouldering banner, but just opposite to us was a tall, modern, marble monument on the wall. That's Old Heel's monument, said Basil, with a long, pious inscription by the old rector. Just look at it. Did you ever see such vandalism? I drew near. Then I saw that the monument had been defaced in a hideous and horrible way. There were deep dints in the marble like the marks of a hammer, and there were red stains over the inscription, which reminded me in a dreadful way of the stains on the letter given to me by Vivian. Good heavens, I said, what inconceivable brutality! Who on earth did this? That's just what no one can find out, said Basil, smiling. But the inscription was rather too much, I confess. Look at this. 
who discharged in an exemplary way the duties of a landowner and a Christian. Old Heel's ideas of the duties of a landowner was to screw as much as he could out of his farmers, and he had, moreover, some old ideas which we may call feudal about his relations with the more attractive of his tenants. He was a cheerful old boy, and as to the Christian part of it, well, he had about as much of that, I gather, as you may take up on a two-pronged fork. Still, they might have left the old man alone. I dare say he sleeps sound enough in spite of it all. He stamped his foot on the pavement as he did so, which returned a hollow sound. Are you inside? said Basil laughingly. Perhaps not at home. Don't talk like that, I said to Basil, whose levity seemed to me disgusting. Certainly not, my boy, he said, if you don't like it. I dare say the old man can look after himself. And so we left the church. We returned home about four o'clock. Basil left me on the terrace and went into the house to interview Mrs. Hall on the subject of dinner. I hung for a time over the balustrade, but getting chilly and still not feeling inclined to go in, I strolled to the farther end of the terrace, which ran up to the wood. On reaching the end, I found a stone seat, and behind it, between two yews, a little dark, sinister path that led into the copse. I do not know exactly what feeling it was which drew me to enter upon the exploration of the place. The path was slippery and overgrown with moss, and the air of the shrubbery into which it led was close and moist, full of the breath of rotting leaves. The path ran with snake-like windings, so that at no point was it possible to see more than a few feet ahead. Above, the close boughs held hands as if to screen the path from the light. Then the path suddenly took a turn to the left and went straight to the house. Two yews flanked the way, and a small flight of granite steps, slimy and mildewed, led up to a little door in the corner of the house, a door which had been painted brown like the colour of the stone, and which was let into its frame so as to be flush with the wall. The upper part of it was pierced with a couple of apertures like eyes, filled with glass to give light to the passage within. The steps had evidently not been trodden for many months, even years, but upon the door near the keyhole were odd marks, looking as if scratched by the hoofs of some beast. A goat, I thought, as if the door had been impatiently struck by something awaiting entrance there. I do not know what was the obsession which fell on me at the sight of this place. A cold dismay seemed to spring from the dark and clutch me. There are places which seemed so soaked, as it were, in malign memories that they give out a kind of spiritual aroma of evil. I have seen in my life things which might naturally seem to produce in the mind associations of terror and gloom. I have seen men die. I have seen a man writhe in pain on the ground from a mortal injury. But I never experienced anything like the thrill of horror which passed through my shuddering mind at the sight of the little door with its dark eye-holes. I went in chilly haste down the path and came out upon the terrace, looking out over the peaceful woods. The sun was now setting in the west among cloud fjords and bays of rosy light, but the thought of the dark path lying like a snake among the thickets dwelt in my mind and poisoned all my senses. Presently I heard the voice of Basil call me cheerfully from the corner of the house. We went in. A simple meal was spread for us, half tea, half dinner, 
to which we did the full justice. But afterwards, though Basil was fuller than ever, so it seemed to me, of talk and laughter, I was seized with so extreme a fatigue that I drowsed off several times in the course of our talk, till at last, laughingly, he ordered me to bed. I slept profoundly. When I awoke, it was a bright day. My curtains had been drawn, and the materials from my toilet arranged where I slept. I dressed hastily and hurried down to find Basil awaiting me. That morning we gave up to exploring the house. It was a fine old place, full from end to end of the evidences of long and ancestral habitation. The place was full of portraits. It was a great old dining room. Basil had had the whole house unshuttered for my inspection. A couple of large drawing rooms, long passages, bedrooms, all full of ancient furniture and pictures, as if the family life had been suddenly suspended. I noticed that he did not take me to the study, but led me upstairs. This is my room, said Basil suddenly, and we turned into a big room in the left-hand corner of the garden front. There was a big four-post bedroom here, a large table in the window, a sofa, and some fine chairs. But what at once attracted my observation was a low door in the corner of the room, half hidden by a screen. It seemed to me, as if by a sudden gleam of perception, that this door must communicate with the door I had seen below, and presently, while I stood looking out of the great window upon the valley, I said to Basil, "'And uh, that door in the corner, does that communicate with the little door in the wood?' When I said this, Basil was standing by the table, bending over some manuscripts. He suddenly turned to me, and gave me a very long, penetrating look, and then, as if suddenly recollecting himself, said, "'My dear Ward!' You are a very observant fellow. Yes, there is a little staircase there that goes down into the shrubbery and leads to the terrace. You remember that old heel of whom I told you? Well, he had this room, and he had visitors at times whom I dare say it was not convenient to admit to the house. They came and went this way, and he too, no doubt, used the stairs to leave the house and return unseen. How curious, I said. I confess, I should not care to have this room. I didn't like the look of the shrubbery door. Well, said Basil, I do not feel with you. To me, it's rather agreeable to have the association of the room. He was a loose old fish, no doubt, but he lived his life, and I expect enjoyed it, and that is more than most of us can claim. As he said the words, he crossed the room, and opening the little door, he said, Come and look down. It's a simple place enough. I went across the room, and looking in, saw a small flight of stairs, going down into the dark, at the end of which the two square panes of the little shrubbery door were outlined in the shadow. I cannot account for what happened next. There was a sound in the passage, and something seemed to rush up the stairs and past me. A strange, dull smell came from the passage. I know that there fell on me a sort of giddiness and horror, and I went back into the room with hands outstretched like Elmius the sorcerer, seeking someone to guide me. Looking up, I saw Basil, regarding me with a baleful look and a strange smile on his face. What was that? I said. Surely something came up there. I, I don't know what it was. There was a silence then. My dear Ward, said Basil, you are behaving very oddly. I wanted to think you had seen a ghost. He looked at me with a sort of gleeful triumph, like a man showing the advantages of a house or the beauties of a view to an astonished friend but again I could find no words to express my sense of what I had experienced. 
Basil went swiftly to the door and shut it, and then said to me with a certain sternness, Come, we have been here long enough. Let us go on. I'm afraid I'm boring you. We went downstairs, and the rest of the morning passed, so far as I can remember, in a species of fitful talk. I was endeavouring to recover from the events of the morning, and Basil, well, he seemed to me like a man who was fencing with some difficult question. Though his talk seemed spontaneous, I felt somehow that it was that of a weak antagonist endeavouring to parry the strokes of a persistent assailant. After luncheon, Basil proposed a walk again. We went out on a long ramble, as we had done the previous day, but I remember little of what happened. He directed me upon a stream of indifferent talk, but I laboured, I think, under a heavy depression of spirit, and my conversation was held up merely as it might have been as a shield against the insistent demands of my companion. Anyone who has been through a similar experience in which he wrestles with some tragic fact and endeavours merely to meet and answer the sprightly suggestions of some cheerful companion can imagine what I felt. At last, the evening began to close in. We retraced our steps. Basil told me that we should dine at an early hour, and I was left alone in my room. I became the prey of the most distressing and poignant reflections. What I had experienced convinced me that there was something about the whole place that was uncanny and abnormal. The attitude of my companion, his very geniality, seemed to me to be forced and unnatural, and my only idea was to gain, if I could, some notion of how I should proceed. I felt that questions were useless, and I committed myself into the hands of Providence. I felt that here was a situation that I could not deal with, and that I must leave it in stronger hands than my own. This reflection brought me some transitory comfort, and when I heard Basil's voice calling me to dinner, I felt that sooner or later the conflict would have to be fought out, and that I could not myself precipitate matters. After dinner, Basil, for the first time, showed some signs of fatigue, and after a little conversation he sank back in a chair, lit a cigar, and presently asked me to play something. I went to the piano, still, I must confess, seeking for some possible opportunity of speech, and let my fingers stray as they moved along the keys. For a time I extemporized and then fell into some familiar music, I do not know whether the instinctive thought of what he had scrawled upon his note to me influenced me, but I began to play Mendelssohn's anthem, Hear My Prayer. While I played the initial phrase, I became aware that some change was making itself felt in my companion, and I had hardly come to the end of the second phrase when a sound from Basil made me turn round. I do not think that I ever received so painful a shock in my life as that which I experienced at the sight that met my eyes. Basil was still in the chair where he had seated himself, but instead of the robust personality which he had presented to me during our early interviews, I saw in a sudden flash the Basil that I knew, only infinitely more tired and haggard than I had known him in life. It was like a man who had cast aside a mask, and had suddenly appeared in his own part. He sat before me, as I had often seen him sit, leaning forward in an intensity of emotion. I stopped suddenly, wheeled round in my chair, and said, Basil, 
tell me what has happened. He looked at me, cast an agitated glance around the room, and then all of a sudden began to speak in a voice that was familiar to me of old. What he said is hardly for me to recount, but he led me step by step through a story so dark in horrors that I can hardly bring myself to reproduce it here. Imagine an untainted spirit entering cheerfully upon some simple entourage, finding himself, little by little, within the net of some overpowering influence of evil. He told me that he had settled at Traheel in his normal frame of mind, that he had intended to tell me of his whereabouts, but that there had gradually stolen into his mind a sort of unholy influence. At first, he said, I, I resisted it, but it was accompanied by so extraordinary an access of mental power and vigour that he had accepted the conditions under which he found himself. I had better, perhaps, try to recount his own experience. He had come to Grand Pound in the course of his wanderings, and had inquired about lodgings. He had been referred to the farmer of Traheel. He had settled himself there, only congratulating himself upon the mixture of quiet and dignity which surrounded him. He had arranged his life for tranquil study, had chosen his rooms, and had made the best disposition he could of his affairs. The second night, he said, that I was here. I had gone to bed thinking of nothing but my music. I had extinguished my light and was lying quietly in bed, watching the expiring glimmer of the embers on my hearth. I was wondering, as one does, weaving all kinds of fancies about the house and the room in which I found myself, lying with my head on my hand, when I saw, to my intense astonishment, the little door in the corner of the bedroom, half open and closed again. I thought to myself that it was probably Mrs. Hall coming to see whether I was comfortable, and I thereupon said, "'Who's there?' There was no sound in answer, but presently, a moment or two after, there followed a disagreeable laughter, I thought, from the lower regions of the house in the direction of the corner. "'Come in, whoever you are,' I said, and in a moment the door opened and closed, and I became aware that there was someone in the room. Further than that, said Basil to me, in that dreadful hour, it is impossible to go. I can only say that I became aware, in a moment, of the existence of a world outside of and intertwined with our own, a world of far stronger influences and powers. How far-reaching I know not, but I know this, that all the mortal difficulties and dilemmas that I had hitherto been obliged to meet melted away in the face of a force to which I had hitherto been a stranger. The dreadful recital ended about midnight, and the strange part was to me that our position seemed in some fearful manner to have now been reversed. Basil was now the shrinking, timorous creature who could only implore me not to leave him. It was in such a mood as this that he had written the letter. I asked him, what there was to fear. Everything, he said with a shocking look. He would not go to bed. He would not allow me to leave the room. Step by step I unravelled the story, which his incoherent statement had only hinted at. His first emotion had been that of intense fright. But he became aware almost at once that the spirit, who thus so unmistakably came to him, was not inimical to him. 
the very features of the being, if such a word can be used about so shadowy a thing, appear to wear a smile. Little by little the presence of the visitant had become habitual to Basil. There was a certain pride in his own fearlessness which helped him. Then there was intense and eager curiosity. And then too, said the unhappy man, the influence began to affect me in other ways. I will not tell you how. But the very necessaries of life were provided for me in a manner which I should formerly have condemned with the utmost scorn, but which now I was given confidence to disregard. The dejection, the languorous reflections which used to hang about me, gradually drew off and left me cheerful, vigorous, and I must say it, delighting in evil imaginations, but so subtle was the evil influence that it was not into any gross corruption or flagrant deeds that I flung myself. It was into my music that the poison flowed. I do not, of course, mean that evil then appeared to me, as I can humbly say it does now, as evil, but rather as a vision of perfect beauty, glorifying every natural function and every corporeal desire. The springs of music rose clear and strong within me, and with the fountain I mingled from my own stores the subtle venom of the corrupted mind. How glorious, I thought, to sway as with a magic wand the souls of men, to interpret for each all the eager and leaping desires which may be he had duly and dutifully controlled, to make all things fair, for so potent were the whispers of the spirit that talked to my ear that I believed in my heart that all that was natural in man was also permissible and even beautiful, and that it was nothing but a fantastic asceticism that forbids it. Though now I see, as I saw before, that the evil that thwarts mankind is but the slime of the pit, out of which he is but gradually extricating himself. But what is the thing, I said, of which you speak? Is it a spirit of evil? or a human spirit, or, or what? Good God, he said, how can I tell? And then with lifted hand he sang in a strange voice a bar or two from Stanford's revenge. Was he devil or man? He was devil for aught they knew. This dreadful interlude, the very flippancy of it, that might have moved my laughter at any other time, had acted upon me an indescribably sickening effect. I stared at Basil. He relapsed into a moody silence with clasped hands and knotted brow. To draw him away from the nether darkness of his thoughts, I asked him how and in what shape the spirit had made itself plain to him. Oh, no shape at all, said he. He is there, that is enough. I seem sometimes to see a face to catch the glance of an eye, to see a hand raised to warn, or to encourage. But it is all impossibly remote. I could never explain to you how I see him. Do you see him now? I asked. Yes, said Basil, a long way off, and he is running swiftly to me. But he has far to go yet. He is angry. He threatens me. He beats the air with his hands. But, but where is this? I asked, for Basil's eyes were upon the ground. Oh, for God's sake, man, be silent, said Basil. It is in the region of which you and others know little, but it has been revealed to me. It lies all about us. 
It has its capes and shadowy peaks, and a leaden sea full of sound. It is there that I ramble with him. There was a silence between us, and I said, But dear Basil, I must ask you this. How was it that you wrote as you did to me? Oh, he made me write, he said, and I think he overreached himself, or my angel, he that beholds the father's face, smote him down. I was myself again on a sudden, the miserable and abject wretch whom you see before you, and knowing that I had been as a man in a dream. Then I wrote the despairing words and guarded the letter so that he could not come near me, and then Mr. Vivian's visit to me. That was not by chance. I gave him the letter, and he promised to bear it faithfully, and what attempts were made to tear it from him I do not know, but that my adversary tried his best I do not doubt. But Vivian is a good man and could not be harmed. And then I fell back into the old spell, and worked still more abundantly and diligently, and produced this, this accursed thing, which shall not live to scatter evil abroad. As he said these words, he rose, and tore the score that lay on the table into shreds and crammed the pieces in the fire. As he thrust the last pieces down, the poker he was holding fell from his hands. I saw him, white as a sheet and trembling. What is the matter? I said. He turned a terrible look on me and said, He is here. He has arrived. Then all at once I was aware that there was a sort of darkness in the room, and then with a growing horror I gradually perceived that in and through the room there ran a thing like the front of a precipice, with some dark strand at its foot on which beat a surge of phantom waves. The two scenes struggled together. At one time I could plainly see the cliff front close beside me, and then the lamp and the firelit room was all dimmed even to vanishing, and then suddenly the room would come back and the cliff die into a steep shadow. But in either of the scenes Basil and I were there, he standing irresolute and despairing, glancing from side to side like a hare when the hounds close in. And once he said, this was when the cliff loomed up suddenly, there are others with him. Then in a moment it seemed as if the room in which we sat died away altogether, and I was in that other place. There was a faint light, as from under a stormy sky, and a little farther up the strand there stood a group of dark figures which seemed to consult together. All at once the group broke and came suddenly towards us. I do not know what to call them. They were, they were human in a sense, that is, they walked upright and had heads and hands, but the faces were all blurred and fretted, like half-rotted skulls. But there was no sense of comparison in me. I only knew that I had seen ugliness and corruption at the very source, and looked into the darkness of the pit itself. The forms eluded me and rushed upon Basil, who made a motion as though to seize hold of me, and then turned and fled, his arms outstretched, glancing behind him as he ran, and in a moment he was lost to view, though I could see along the shore of that formless sea something like a pursuit. I do not know what happened after that. I think I tried to pray, but I presently became aware that I was myself menaced by danger. It seems but I speak in parables, as though one had separated himself from the rest 
and had returned to seek me. But all was over, I knew, and the figure indeed carried something which he swung and shook in his hand, which I thought was a token to be shown to me. And then I found my voice and cried out with all my strength to God to save me. And in a moment there was the firelit room again and the lamp, the most peaceful-looking room in England. The basil had left me. The door was wide open, and in a moment the farmer and his wife came hurrying along with blanched faces to ask who it was that had cried out and what had happened. I made some pitiful excuse that I had dozed in my chair and had awoken crying out some unintelligible words, for in the quest I was about to engage in I did not wish that any mortal should be with me. They left me, asking for Mr. Netherby and still not satisfied. Indeed, Mrs. Hall looked at me with so penetrating a look that I felt that she understood something of what had happened, and then at once I went up to Basil's room. I do not know where I found the courage to do it, but the courage came. The room was dark, and a strong wind was blowing through it from the little door. I stepped across the room, feeling my way, went down the stairs, and finding the door open at the bottom, I went out into the snake-like path. I went some yards along it. The moon had risen now. There came a sudden gap in the trees to the left, through which I could see the pale fields in the corner of the wood casting its black shadow on the ground. The shrubs were torn, broken, and trampled, as though some heavy thing had crashed through. I made my way cautiously down, endowed with a more than human strength. It was a steep bank covered with trees. And then, in a moment, I saw Basil. He lay some distance out in the field on his face. I knew, at a glance, that it was all over. And when I lifted him, I became aware that he was in some way strangely mangled. And indeed, it was found afterwards that, though the skin of his body was hardly contused, yet that almost every bone of the body was broken into fragments. I managed to carry him to the house. I closed the doors of the staircase, and then I managed to tell Farmer Hall that Basil had, had, I thought, a fall, and was dead. And then my own strength failed me, and for three days and nights I lay in a kind of stupor. When I recovered my consciousness, I found myself in bed in my own room, Mrs. Hall nursed me with a motherly care and tenderness which moved me very greatly, but I could not speak of the matter to her, until, just before my departure, she came in, as she did twenty times a day, to see if I wanted anything. I made a great effort and said, Mrs. Hall, I am very sorry for you. This has been a terrible business, and I am afraid you won't easily forget it. You ought to leave the house, I think. Mrs. Hall turned her frozen gaze upon me and said, Yes, sir, indeed. I can't speak about it or think of it. I feel as if I might have prevented it, and yet I have been over and over in my mind, and I can't see where I was wrong. But my duty is to the house now, and I shall never leave it. But I will ask you, sir, to try and find a thought of pity in your heart for him. I knew she didn't mean Basil. I don't think he clearly knows what he has done. He must have his will, as he always did. He stopped at nothing, 
if it was for his pleasure, and he didn't know what harm he did. But he's in God's hands, and though I cannot understand why, yet there are things in this life which he allows to be, and we must try not to be judges. We must try to be merciful. But I have not done what I could have done, and if God gives me strength, there shall be an end of this. A few hours later, Mr. Vivian called to see me. He was a very different person to the Vivian that had showed himself to me in Hoban. I couldn't talk with him much, but I could see that he had some understanding of the case. He asked me no questions, but he told me a few details. He said that they had decided at the inquest that he had fallen from the terrace, but the doctor who was attending me seems to have said to Mr. Vivian that a fall it must have been, but a fall of a most unconceivable character. And what is more, the old doctor had added, the man was neither in pain nor agitation of mind when he died. The face was absolutely peaceful and tranquil. And the doctor's theory was that he had died from some sudden seizure before the fall. And so I held my tongue. One thing I did, it was to have a little slab put over the body of my dead friend, a simple slab with name and date, and I ventured to add one line, because I have no doubt in my own mind that Basil was suddenly delivered, though not from death. He had, I suppose, gone too far upon the dark path, and he could not, I think, have freed himself from the spell, and so the cord was loosed, but loosed in mercy, and so I made them add the words, And in their hands they shall bear thee up. I must add one further word. About a year after the events above recorded, I received a letter from Mr. Vivian, which I give without further comment. St. Sibby, December 18th, 1890 Dear Mr. Ward, I wish to tell you that our friend Mrs. Hall died a few days ago. She was a very good woman, one of the few that are chosen. I was much with her in her last days, and she told me a strange thing, which I cannot bring myself to repeat to you, but she sent you a message which she repeated several times, which she said you would understand. It is simply this. Tell Mr. Ward I have prevailed. I may add that I have no doubt of the truth of her words, as you will know to what I am alluding. The day after she died, there was a fire at Traheel. Mr. Hall was absolutely distracted with grief at the loss of his wife, and I do not quite know what happened. But it was impossible to save the house. All that is left of it is a mass of charred ruins, with a few walls standing up. Nothing was saved, not even a picture. There is a wholly inadequate insurance, and I believe it is not intended to rebuild the house. I hope you will bear us in mind, though I know you so little. I shall always feel that we have a common experience which will hold us together— you will try to visit us some day when the memory of what took place is less painful to you. The grass is now green on your poor friend's grave, and I will only add that you will have a warm welcome here. I am just moving into the rectory as my old rector died a fortnight ago, and I have accepted the living. God bless you, dear Mr. Ward. Yours very sincerely, James Vivian. That was uh, Basil Netherby, obviously, by A.C. Benson. 
and I got this from a it's in a collection called Ghosts in the House, which is in the Collins Chillers collection, the series. They have quite a few good ones in that. And uh, it contains the Tales of Terror by A.C. Benson and R.H. Benson, who were the brothers of E.F. Benson. I'm guessing they just didn't call each other by initials at home or else it could have gone very awkward. You know that uh, they were the three boys were um, sons of a, the Bishop of Truro, hence the Cornish connections in lots of their stories, and uh, who later became Archbishop of Canterbury. Apparently, Queen Victoria's, he was Queen Victoria's favourite bishop. The, the book uh, I've just been talking about, Ghosts in the House, from which this was taken, has a, a really good introduction by Hugh Lamb. And uh, he, he says, uh, uh, Arthur, Fred and Hugh. So obviously uh, th- we, they're not going by AC, RH and uh, EF. Were the surviving sons of Edward White Benson, one of Queen Victoria's favourite archbishops of Canterbury. Another son, Martin, died in his teens. The whole family was, to put it, mildly odd. To all appearances, the epitome of an upper-class Victorian family. The history reads like a TV soap opera. Child bride, a ruthless patriarch, lesbianism, homosexuality, child death, religious mania, and homicidal lunacy. Arthur, who wrote this story, became a schoolmaster teaching first at Eton and then moving to Cambridge. And I say that's... uh, M.R. James uh, did both of those, didn't he? He was at Cambridge and at Eton. Apparently, he wrote a lot of homilies, religious homilies, full of sweetness and light. This is Arthur. And he had a huge audience. So all of the Benson brothers were really successful in their, in their lifetime as writers. Of course, E.F. Fred is the, um, the one who we know most about. But apparently, Arthur uh, was broke. And he had this wealthy, anonymous American woman who was married to a rich man. And she offered him a large sum of money to improve the college at Magdalen College. So he did a lot of good stuff. He suffered from depression and his sister Maggie, their sister Maggie, was, was insane. And that was a great trial and tribulation to the family. He wrote the words to Land of Hope and Glory, which if you're British, you will know because it's the kind of um, second national anthem of... of uh, yeah, it, it is very imperialist and stuff like that and it gets criticised. I'm not going to sing it. I enjoyed singing that in the in the story. Now... Hugh, the other brother, and Arthur, I see, was also a friend of M.R. James, which makes sense, doesn't it, in a small Cambridge circle. His brother Hugh uh, was a became a Catholic priest, I think, and he uh, his stories in this collection, they have a lot of buoyant religious messages, which kind of spoils them. I think, you know, Fred E.F. Benson doesn't get, you know, he was a religious guy as well. But he doesn't, his stories are to entertain and not to enlighten, not to improve us morally. Although, you know, I have a theory that all stories in a subtle way are, are moral stories. We could, we could discuss this. We had the book club. Oh, I'm getting ahead of myself, but on the Discord server for the members, we have a book club. And we had the first one on Friday and discussed the Phantom Coach. And it was absolutely delightful. And we all got to uh, have a chat. I try not to speak too much, but, uh, and that is an effort for me, as you can gather. But I'm going to really. Um, I once had a patient who was, in fact, insane. But um, at one point he turned to me and said, uh, he was a tough guy. He turned to me and said, you talk a lot for a fella, don't you? And I said, well, yes, I do, actually. Always have. But the whole family do. So there we are. I'm a bit hyper today. I don't know why. So what do I think about that story? I thought it was good. A lot of the stories in this collection of AC and RH, they're nowhere near as good as EF. Uh, But this one, is probably uh, Arthur's best story, and I think that's well acknowledged. 
and uh, such luminaries as Matt Cowan and Jay Rothermill can uh, can advise on that. And if you look on their sites, you'll find that they've discussed this this story in far greater academic knowledge than I have a knowledge of the genre. Anyway, it's good atmosphere, isn't it? There are stories. The music hath charms. If you remember, uh, is also set in Cornwall. Uh, that's on. If you look on the channel, you'll find that. And that's a story about a man who gets possessed by the spirit of a music box in Cornwall. So there's this idea that the spirits of places can change our character. There's also Full Circle by John Buchan. If you remember, there's the house, this lovely house in the Cotswolds, near where I stayed last week. And it uh, it has a genial ghost. Uh, uh, the, the people who move into it are the kind of doer, kind of do-gooders who have no sense of humour. And they get turned into genial, sort of easygoing folk by the spirit of the house. So this is similar to that, except the spirit of the house is rather nasty. The old Mr. Treheel, Mr. Heel. Of course, Treheel is Cornish for Heel's Farm or Heel's Town. Tre being British for, when I say British, I mean Welsh, Cornish, Breton for and Cumbrian uh, for uh, a village. It means a village now, but it used to mean a farm. Anyway, I digress again. So the atmosphere is good, this remote place. It's all done very, very well. I thought that it was made better by the fact that the old squire, Mr. Treheel, has a spokesperson in Mrs. Hall. Mrs. Hall is a local lass. And she kind of makes allowances for him and says he, he, he isn't really bad. He's more an elemental spirit. He just lived a, a loose life, had his way with the young women, probably drank too much and was a bit of a hellraiser. Uh, but she finds place in her heart to forgive him for that and not hold him guilty. So I think that adds a subtleness. You know, we think that um, the most subtle, subtle stories, it's a more mature position to be able to hold a, a person who is neither wholly good or wholly bad. That is honestly, and that's actually Melanie Klein says that, the so-called depressive position. So first of all, we tend to, when we're children, um, either, everybody's either fully evil, black as the devil himself, or they're angels and can do no wrong. And the truth is, of course, that people, everybody you meet is mixed. And in a lot of genre fiction, um, the, the bad are bad and the good are good. But in this, I think, you know, it, it's refreshing because she is the spokesperson for the bad guy and we see him that he isn't fully evil and even his effect on um, Basil is to make him genial, productive, uh, but there is a dark quality to what he produces. So he's not wholly bad, you know, this Traheel, although there is something monstrously tainted about him as well. Uh, and there is this unbridled passion. So that leads us to this idea that uh, Traheel is a romantic creature. He, he's, he's, he's natural. He's the natural man. He obeys his natural urges. And part of us as people thinks that's good, but then we're frightened of it because we've spent most of our history dominating nature, dominating nature, going out, building roads and tilling fields, but also dominating our, na our natures. So our natural, the natural instincts of a two-year-old, you know, you've seen them having a tantrum, they're not, they haven't had the chocolate or the toy truck, so they're going to carry on, and they are full of rage and destruction. And they are, if they were bigger, they would cause immense damage. Now, most of us, we learn through society and our families 
to manage those things. Now, I have many patients who, who struggle to regulate their emotions and it causes them massive problems. And mainly those fall into two groups what we diagnostically call the dissocial personality or antisocial personality disorders, which are overwhelmingly men, but not always. And they mostly go to jail. They're mostly violent and lawbreakers. They can't um, cont- regulate the, the emotion of anger. They're full of resentment and hurt and sadness as well when you get under it. And then typically women, but not all women. Uh, you know, it, it does seem to be a split like this, which is the the emotional, um, so-called emotionally unstable personality disorder. It's probably about 70% female, 30% male. And that is, um, that, I've just plucked that figure out, but look into it, whereby uh, the, the emotions there are usually despair. And uh, so, you, you know, they feel rejected and they feel they want to die. And so they try and kill themselves a lot. So, you know, both of those groups are given to outbursts. The, in a sense, for most of us, that is filtered out. And uh, one argument would be that by, I think I don't know Freud would say this, we stamp on the libido and we lose our naturalness. So we lose some vigor. So we do not. And so we see this in the Basil who's possessed by the old squire. He gains a vigor and a geniality and a life force, a libido, really. And of course, I don't think it's a, therefore a coincidence that one of the hints is that uh, the old squire was um, free with, in a feudal way with the attractive members. You know, it's about life. It's about vigor. It's about um, libido. It's about those kind of things that we're not going to mention by name, but we know what we mean. But it's tainted. Now, if we switch into Jungian thinking, we would say that the old squire is Basil Netherby's shadow. So he, the shadow in Jungian uh, psychology is all those parts of ourselves that we repress, that we can't tolerate, and we put away. We dissociate them, we project them. Um, we, you, this is Anna Freud, actually. We project them out as defense mechanisms. We get rid of that unpleasantness. We can't tolerate that badness, so we shove it out into the world. And so all the things we hate are generally our shadow that we've just projected out into the world. One loses vigor, one loses one's life force, the, the, the going into life and seizing it and saying, I don't care what you think, I'm having this, that power there. But we feel it's tainted. So what Jung said was, we have all these archetypes, one of which is the shadow that lurk in the unconscious. They are not conscious to us. We have not made them conscious. They are still lurking below our awareness. So we see them in the world and, you know, and they're all together and they are tainted with evil. So often one of the other figures that we can have is the, the divine feminine, the anima figure. And she, if she's not conscious, but she's also the devouring mother. She's, I don't know if you saw the Lord of the Rings, um, not the Rings of Power, but the, the movie where Galadriel suddenly transforms into the dark queen. When the anima is not surfaced, she is tainted with evil. So all the archetypes that we do not, uh, we're not aware of, they're tainted with, and when I'm talking about evil, I'm talking about bone-shaking terror. I'm talking about not just the concept of evil, we experience them as terrifying. And I think this is what we're seeing here. So Basil it is possessed by the shadow, uh, which we personify as, as the ghost of the old bloke, and it gives him this power, but it is tainted with evil. And he struggles to um, 
to not be possessed and retain his ego, retain his own individual individuality, because the shadow is not particularly, the archetypes aren't personal, they are universal, and so we, we lose ourselves in the mob, in the crowd, we lose our individuality when we're possessed by them, so when we fall in love, we're possessed by that archetype, and we lose our our rationality and our ability to stand by. So the de the devil is the same thing. The devil is the shadow, is the archetype of evil. You know, and the devil does not always get a totally bad press. Look at Milton. I've done Milton's Paradise Lost somewhere, if you want to go and look at it. It's on one of the poetry channels. But yeah, the devil in Milton's not a bad guy. He's, and You know, in Faust, in Goethe's Faust, Mephistopheles isn't totally, he's quite funny. Yeah, they're not, not purely evil, and neither is this character. But the struggle is for one's individual soul, I suppose. And remember, these men were deeply Christian. Definitely the struggle is to not be possessed by this shadow, archetypal shadow, and to retain one. And I think that is the victory in the end. It kills him, but he prevails in the end, and that's the meaning of that. He, he, whatever happens to him, these, you know, as I said, Christians, so they believe in the afterlife. So as he's going forward, he's not possessed by the devil, who is, the, he's not possessed by the shadow. He retains his, his humanity. And I think that's what that's about. So I think it's a very, very complex, um, psychologically complex story in that we are, we see the shadow figure in its truth, which is that it has both good and bad. And we see the struggle that we all go through to assimilate these archetypes. They're very powerful and we can lose our individuality to them if we're possessed by them. Uh, and the real struggle is to remain human in the face of these inhuman forces. And there we go. So there you are. I am probably going to drop another day from my work. So I'm going to go to two days from three because I've just got so much to do. I'm doing my Haunted Places um, channel in addition to this one too. To, it's kind of uh, not putting my eggs in one basket because... It can so happen that YouTube suddenly decides, right, you're going to demonetize your channel because you've broken. This happened to the Sherlock Holmes stories and bite-sized audio, and they have had the devil's own job to get the monetization back, and much bigger channels than me were probably relying on the income. So I thought, right, I'm going to, I'm going to develop another one. So it's going okay. I've nearly got a 1,000 subs. I just need a bit more watch time, and then that will be another income stream. But in, in anticipation of that, I'm cutting down my days to two days a week. I, it's not without some sadness because, as you can tell, as I was talking about shadows and all that kind of thing, I've never, never been bored in my work. It's just hard. It's emotionally hard. It's emotional labor. On a Friday when I just do all telephone calls, I speak to 30 patients and they're all bereaved, desperate, anxious, suicidal. And when they get better, they don't speak to me anymore. I just get a new one that is and it's, it is hard, and I'm getting older, and, and my heart is now being drawn to doing storytelling, more storytelling. I'm very interested in stories. I don't think I will stop being interested in mental health and psychology and all this kind of stuff, but I think the time has come to pivot and to move more towards my storytelling, so that's what I'm doing. Um, I'm doing my late-night talk ready. I'm doing too many things, really. I wake, I wake in the night, and I'm like I'm downloading ideas. I've now had with the Haunted Places website. I used to run, back in 1999, I had a website. I've had adventures on the internet before that was called Haunted Britain and Ireland. I may have mentioned it on this commentary before. And it used to bring in a little bit of money. It paid for a holiday to Krakow 
that that website did back in 1999. And uh, it was basically a, a gazetteer of haunted places, castles, hotels that you could stay in in Britain and Ireland. And I used to get a little bit of money from when I booked people there. That's harder these days because mainly it's all through these giants like booking.com, etc. But I thought, well, I can do that again and I can create a blog. And I've been listening to loads of stuff on YouTube about how to run a profitable blog. Mine is just in the infancy. Anyway, last night I'm sitting there half asleep and this idea comes, what you could do is itineraries of, it'd have to be the UK and Ireland because I know that best. But ideally, if somebody could, if it branched out and somebody could do some for the USA or Australia or New Zealand or other places that people listen to the podcast. So basically in 2004, before I started my nursing, just this, no, 2003, the year before, I, um, I was running a, a ghost tour business and I did um, ghost tours of England and I did this fantastic ghost tour with a bus full of, uh, they were all Americans as it turned out, and we had a great time, me and Billy the driver. And we did this itinerary, we went to haunted London and then we went up uh, to Borley Rectory in Essex, most haunted house in England. To up to Norwich to the castle there, which where the the, um, the she wolf queen Eleanor's ghost supposed to be Castle Rising outside Norwich ghost tour around Norwich. Then we went to Kings Lynn where there was ghosts. Obviously, we stayed in another haunted hotel there. We made our way to York. It was blisteringly hot. York's a fantastic place. Went in another haunted hotel. Had a medium show. Went to Whitby where Dracula was supposed to be. Then we hurried down, stopped at St Albans on the way, and put him back on the um, airplane. And I, I was younger then and I ended, you know, I was, a lot of these haunted hotels don't have all mod cons. And so I had to lug people's suitcases up third floor cause they were the guests and I was, the, I was the help. And, uh, I couldn't do that now. I wouldn't want to do that. And I'm too old. So I'm not sure I'll do the tours myself, but I, I thought I could put itineraries together for people who wanted to do these things, you know, and then I could kind of maybe collaborate with somebody in other countries and do the same thing. So this was being downloaded to me in the middle of the night and I couldn't sleep. But it's a good idea, I think. Anyway, I could talk forever. I'm alone. I've just seen my delightful daughter, Catherine, this morning. She was in town and she was out with her friend last night. So we had a long chat and put the world to rights. She's a teacher. And we were talking about the, the mess the country is in, not the world, and the health system and the education system where we, we seem to treat people like units rather than people and we both agree that what we need is to treat people like people and have the, the best thing in healthcare is the quality of the relationship you have with your patient and the best thing in teaching is the quality of the relationship you have with your pupil an authentic nurturing relationship not you know a tick box exercise with loads of regulations from on high we're in a different position Catherine and I because we think the same about it but I'm like yeah, I don't care. Suspend me. Go on. Suspend me for a year on full pay while you investigate something or other. Where she's, you know, she's just 26, I think, and not able to do that. Anyway, so there we are. Basil Netherby. A good one, I think. Um, I'm, I'm thinking of doing Sardonicus by Ray Russell next. Another fantastic story. Similar length to this, maybe a tiny bit longer. And then we're coming up to Halloween, and I've got a commission by Gavin Critchley to do The Stalls of Barchester Cathedral by M.R. James. I'm going to do that and put that on Halloween. So Gavin is my patron in the proper sense. You know, like, <laughs> not that I'm Michelangelo, 
But he, he says to me, look, here's some money, do a story and release it to the world. And he said a thing that actually got me thinking. I thought, ooh. And that thing was, he said, listen, I'm doing this because neither you nor I are going to be here forever, but the stories will be. And I thought, you know, the way the internet is, that's probably true. After Gavin and I are gone, these stories will linger. And that made me feel quite funny. Anyway, I hope you're all well. Take care, see you soon. Everybody dies, don't they? Everybody come back, don't they? Isn't that so? You tried to get into the locked drawer today, didn't you? You tried. How do the dead come back, Mother?